What drives one person to violence and another to peace? What works to reduce violent behaviours in conflict areas? Welcome to the Breaking Cycles of Conflict mini-series for the War Studies podcast, where we share our groundbreaking research on how traumas can drive violent and peaceful behaviour in conflict zones. This research has been carried out as part of the Cross-Border Conflict Evidence, Policy and Trends Research Programme, otherwise known as ACCEPT, which is a UK aid-funded project that aims to inform policies and programmes that support long-lasting peace. In this episode, Dr Heidi Riley is interviewed by Dr Gina Vale about her research into trauma and the reintegration of ex-combatants. I'm Dr Gina Vale. I'm a Senior Research Fellow at the International Centre for the Study of Radicalisation at King's College London and a Survey Director on the ACCEPT project. And I have with me Dr Heidi Riley, um, who's going to talk about her research about trauma and ex-combatants. So first of all, Heidi, would you be able to introduce yourself? Thank you, Gina. My name's Dr. Heidi Riley. I'm a research fellow from the School of Politics and International Relations at University College Dublin. And I was previously working as interim survey director with the EXEC project this time last year. But I'm currently about to start some research again with the EXEC project, specifically looking at responses to trauma by NGOs working in partner countries. Great. So today uh, you're planning to talk about trauma amongst ex-combatants, a fascinating and really relevant uh, research topic, especially if we think about what might come about in the context of Ukraine, the ongoing conflict there, and many other conflicts that have engaged both state and non-state combatants. So why is it important to address trauma amongst this population? Well, I should start by saying that this focus on trauma and ex-combatants is very new in my own research, but it's something that I really started to think about more recently after conducting research with non-state ex-combatants in Nepal. Um, So what I mean by this is former members of the People's Liberation Army that fought against the state between 1996 and 2006. So during this research, which involved multiple interviews with ex-PLA members, I realised that trauma is something that clearly is present amongst some former combatants, of course to varying degrees depending on the individual and the individual experience. But it's something that's often not spoken about by the individuals themselves. And it's also a topic that's frequently overlooked both within research and in practice, particularly in the context of ex-combatants. And this tends to be because of uh, former combatants' uh, association with being perpetrators of violence, which makes them more likely to be framed as a security risk and therefore disconnected from an association with emotionality or with psychosocial difficulties. But of course the reality is that as individuals who during conflict are likely to experience violence in a variety of forms, either as a victim or as a perpetrator of violence, the legacy of experiencing these violent situations places them as quite a high-risk category with regard to suffering from conflict-related trauma. Now, of course, as I say, um, this is very much context-specific and specific to the individual. But we have to remember that when we talk about ex-combatants as perpetrators of violence, the line between perpetrator and victim is often really quite blurred. So we may find that a member of a non-state armed group that has been a perpetrator of violence may have also suffered trauma through, for example, violent abduction into the armed group. And of course, as a perpetrator of violence, an individual may also experience trauma in reflection of the acts that they've carried out. 
And this form of trauma is normally referred to as moral injury. But it's important to address trauma in ex-combatants, given the multiple ways that trauma might manifest during and after reintegration back into society. Trauma might manifest in depression, in anxiety, in PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, to use the medicalised term. It might manifest in alcohol or substance abuse or sleeping problems. Or also manifestations of trauma can have an impact on behaviours, including violence in its various forms, including domestic violence, or it might have an impact on antisocial behaviours. So in a situation of fragile peace and in a context of mistrust, which is often the case in the immediate aftermath of conflict, ignoring conflict-related trauma amongst ex-combatants who have emerged from an environment in which violence is omnipresent, shall we say, may place certain peace-building initiatives at risk. But at the same time, it may also place the individual and those around them at risk. And there's been some research into self-harm and suicide amongst um, ex-combatants, which finds correlation with trauma associated with the legacy of engagement in violence. Now, indeed, this isn't isn't a factor that sits on on its own in the development of um, psychological or psychosocial difficulties. Other factors that may exacerbate or perpetuate trauma symptoms could be, for example, difficulties in maintaining a sense of agency in post-conflict, ostracisation or difficulties in securing livelihood, dealing with the loss of a loved one, or just having difficulties in dealing with a change in environment. So, for example, where the context has changed from a situation during conflict, where there was an acceptance of violence as part of armed struggle, to one in which violence is no longer accepted, this can lead to a reflection of the self and of the trauma of conflict that might manifest in trauma symptoms, it might manifest in low self-esteem or even suicidal ideation. The experience of trauma may also be a factor related to difficulties in ex-combatants finding employment or being able to hold down a job in post-conflict. So to sum up why addressing trauma amongst ex-combatants is is, is important, we need to consider that by not addressing this issue, this can lead to multiple difficulties as they reintegrate back into the community, where they're shifting from having an identity as a combatant to one where they're now a civilian. And this in turn can contribute to instability where trauma is not addressed in communities, which can in turn jeopardise the peace. So from a research perspective, it's vital to understand more clearly how trauma manifests amongst ex-combatants in order to better address this issue in both policy and practice, particularly in the context of disarmament, demobilisation and reintegration. Okay, so you actually just hinted to what I was then going to follow up with when you talk about a difference between a research perspective and a practical perspective. So first of all, I want to ask you, how is trauma currently approached in relation to ex-combatants from a research perspective? Well, currently research in this area is really quite limited. Much of the research on PTSD in ex-military personnel has been carried out with state veterans, so personnel from Western state militaries rather than a focus on non-state armed groups. So within the literature on PTSD within state militaries, there is um, predominantly work um, quantitative research, some of it focused within psychology literature, that examines PTSD symptoms um, amongst US veterans. There's a lot of work on, on US veterans. And the findings here show very high rates of PTSD. So, for example, according to the US Department of Veteran Affairs, of the 1.64 million soldiers that were deployed for Operation Enduring Freedom, or 
Operation Iraqi Freedom, as, as it might be called by the US Department of Veteran Affairs, approximately 300,000 individuals are currently suffering from PTSD or major depression. So it places it very, very high, with very high numbers there. But as I say, there's very limited research in this area with regard to non-state armed groups. Again, there is some quantitative studies that have been drawn from specific contexts. So, for example, there was the Sway survey, the survey of war-affected youth, that was implemented by um, Blakeman and others um, amongst uh, ex-child soldiers in Uganda. There was also an earlier survey carried out by Humphreys and Weinstein um, amongst Sierra Leonean ex-combatants. Um, there's also some work done by the Transitional Demobilisation and Reintegration Programme and they carried out a survey with ex-combatants in Somaliland and from that they found 16% uh, of those that were part of the survey suffered from a severe mental health disorder and that they were four times more likely to suffer from um, uh, mental ill health than persons that had not had the same war experience and two times more likely than civilian war survivors. This study also linked aggressive tendencies amongst demobilised fighters with psychological trauma and violent socialisation. But there's not really that much um, that uh, uses a kind of qualitative research methodology, which I think would be really useful in understanding the complexity of how trauma amongst this group manifests and examines more closely what the factors are that perpetuate symptoms or how individuals respond to various types of psychosocial support programming. I also think that research in this area could contribute to challenging um, some of the assumptions around ex-combatants who are often perceived primarily as a security risk associated with violence without actually considering the psychological journey through which they've travelled. I think that one of the other problems is the way that trauma amongst ex-combatants is assumed to be quite limited, so only related to the conflict itself rather than taking a more complex approach that also takes account of trauma that might have occurred prior to their participation in conflict. For example, if an individual has suffered childhood trauma. And also, I think it's important to take into consideration the reality that the reintegration process itself could be um, a, a source of perpetuating trauma symptoms, particularly where there's a sense of disillusionment or fear of returning to the communities from which they've left. Okay, and then we have to think of the reverse, because although we're both academics and scholars and like to look at things from a very clean research perspective in practice, this doesn't necessarily match up. So how is trauma currently approached um, from a practical perspective? And do you see a disconnect or any gaps between that research and practical perspective? So from a practical perspective, the focus on psychosocial support in disarmament, demobilisation and reintegration programmes is a bit limited and it's also inconsistent. Now, there has been um, a shift towards a, you know, a greater recognition of this uh, of the need to respond to trauma and psychosocial um, issues, but how that's implemented is still questionable. So, for example, the United Nations current guidance note on the integrated um, disarmament, demobilisation and reintegration standards does include a section on psychosocial support, but makes really no reference to the complexity of trauma in the longer term. Um, Similarly, the United Nations Development Programme practice note on uh, DDR recognises that many ex-combatants may be traumatised on reintegration, 
but this is only identified as being in direct relation to the association of violence, but it overlooks the role of social dynamics within and outside of the group in contributing to trauma. Now, for some groups, for example, child ex-combatants, there are some counselling and psychosocial support programmes. But in general, DDR programmes, within DDR programmes, the main emphasis tends to be on uh, issues like vocational training, guidance on economic integration, or programmes focused on the reinsertion into the community. But of course, and problematically, the long-term success of these programmes may be compromised if trauma and mental health issues are not addressed properly, particularly if these issues are not addressed in a context-specific or localised manner, which also takes account of gender norms and expectations that might affect the differences in needs of men, women, girls and boys. Now, there are some um, INGOs and NGOs that are increasingly including psychosocial support programmes in their assistance. For example, the IOM, I know, run certain programmes on psychosocial support, the IRC, for example. But there's also a question to be asked as to whether these programmes are driven from a very Western perspective by international NGOs, which may not be appropriate in certain contexts. So you mentioned then having a very localised approach, and within that, we have to consider gender. So this is an area of research that both you and I are very interested in and have published on. But why do you think it's important to approach trauma, particularly for ex-combatants, through a gender lens? Well, yes, as I mentioned, I think it's particularly important to look at responding to trauma amongst ex-combatants through a gendered lens. And I think there's three different angles that we need to consider uh, within this. Firstly, given that women and men may be subject to different gender-specific forms of traumatic experience. Secondly, that men and women may admit to or talk about trauma or mental health issues very differently in response to societal gender norms and expectations. And thirdly, that trauma and mental health issues may manifest in different responses and behaviours between men and women, which is not necessarily a biological thing, but it may be more, um, as I say, in response to context-specific gender norms and expectations. I'd love to for you to elaborate on this. And I think it's really important to speak about gender, as we're saying, as a lens, a lens in which to study, in which to understand, and in which to respond to these issues, because it's not simply a tick box exercise. It can really expose some power dynamics and some uh, vulnerabilities that men, women, boys and girls face and very different experiences that are connected to them. So, First, could you elaborate on those gender differences in traumatic experiences for men and women from your research? Yes, you're absolutely right. So to pick up on the issue of vulnerabilities, we know that men, women, girls and boys are faced with different vulnerabilities in conflict. And that also goes for individuals that are members of armed groups. We have to remember that armed groups are not just made up of men, but also include women combatants or women that might take on a variety of different roles associated with an armed group. Now, the numbers of women um, um, are, of course, uh, context dependent. But recent research shows that women's participation in non-state armed groups is much higher than was previously thought. But the vulnerabilities that women may face 
as members of an armed group may differ somewhat from the experiences of men. For example, women may face specifically gendered traumatic experience, which includes, of course, sexual violence. For example, women and girls may be subject to sexual violence or rape within the group, or even as a method of coercion into joining the armed group. So, for example, where a woman is subject to sexual violence on capture, this could prevent them from returning to society due to the stigma associated with being sexually violated. And this is not to say that all women are coerced into armed groups. Of course they're not. Um, Many may make that choice to, to join. But sexual violence may be used in some cases as a method of coercion into joining an armed group. And of course, sexual violence and gender-based violence may also be experienced by women and girls in capture by state forces. And if I think about my own research in Nepal, for example, where there were high numbers of women combatants in the People's Liberation Army, the biggest fear amongst women was to be captured by the state forces because of the levels of sexual violence that were known to take place in prisons. And some recounted um, during my research horrific examples of mutilation of genitals and of rape that took place during capture. Now, of course, when I'm talking about sexual violence, men may also be subject to sexual violence or sexual torture as a means of humiliation or emasculation. And sexual violence against men is much more prevalent in conflict uh, than previously thought although not at the same level um, as as experienced by women and girls. But we often don't know the true figures of sexual violence against men because men tend to be more reluctant to admit it or to seek help. But besides specifically gendered trauma, men and women combatants may also experience the same forms of traumatic experience. For example, from experiencing violence on the battlefield, from being perpetrators of violence, or of course um, by witnessing harms against others, um, maybe family, friends, individuals that they may have built up a very strong bond with during the conflict. But regardless of the kind of the traumatic experiences that, that might be experienced in the same way between men and women, we also need to think about gendered specific experiences. And this is very much also the case within the reintegration of ex-combatants and in consideration of how the experiences um, of reintegration are gendered and what experiences may perpetuate trauma. The women and men may face differing levels of ostracisation as they return to society after conflict, where a man could be celebrated in some cases for his participation in armed struggle. A woman may, on the other hand, may be stigmatised or excluded from society due to um, the reality that she took on Um, a role that is seen as as, as non-feminine. And this can be particularly difficult for women that return with a child born from conflict or born during the conflict. So the exclusion from society that she might face after reintegration means that there's a lack of support network for her and her child uh, and also it increases the difficulties in accessing resources and being able to meet the needs of a child. So exacerbation of trauma or stress in the reintegration process also needs to be considered through a gendered lens as the experiences of men and women in this process may differ significantly due to societal uh, gender norms and expectations. Absolutely. So you spoke with regard to to sexual and gender-based violence about ostracism and exclusion and how that is used by armed groups as a a form of forced recruitment. And then, of course, how women who go against societal expectations and gender ideals by adopting violence or becoming perpetrators of violence also lead to their social exclusion. So you have that 
victim-perpetrator binary in which women often sit on this seesaw between these two extremes and how they are dealt with by society upon potential return. So how do gender norms and social expectations affect the ability to acknowledge trauma or to even speak about it in certain communities? Well, yes, gender norms and expectations can, um, of course, produce stigmas and exclusions, as well as a fear of kind of ostracisation that can leave individuals reluctant to admit to trauma or psychological difficulties. So, for example, where a woman may have participated in an armed group, she may be already ostracised by the that very fact that she took on a role that was not seen as appropriate for a woman. But if she's also suffered sexual violence during the conflict, this could be an added level of ostracisation. Also, where there are stigmas around mental health more generally, to be accused of having mental health difficulties could also lead to accusations of not being a fit person to, to get married or not being fit to be a mother. So this reality might lead to a a general reluctance in the admission um, of suffering from trauma or the admission of um, certain mental health difficulties. And from a masculinity perspective, fear of stigma or ridicule for or, or fear of ridicule for admitting something that doesn't really fit within societal masculine expectations is also a factor that might increase in a reluctance to seek help. So, for example, men are less likely to admit being sexually violated due to the sense of emasculation associated with it. Similarly, men are less likely to admit suffering from trauma or generally or to reach out to mental health services for fear of being seen as weak, which doesn't really fit with this expectations of what it means to be a man. For example, that the idea that men are supposed to be strong, they're supposed to be rational, and they're not supposed to show vulnerability or emotion. And this is the case particularly for men that have fought during a conflict, who are supposed to have a sense of kind of warrior masculinity or whatever. So to admit that they're suffering from depression or from mental health anxieties, for example, might be very difficult um, due to a fear of, of, of coming across as, as, as weak or unmasculine. So it's very important to consider how societal gender norms and expectations influence what it means to be a man or woman in society and therefore influence how individuals are able to speak about their, their experiences in uh, after uh, and during reintegration. Of course, so you've not only got the ability to acknowledge that someone has mental health issues or conflict-related trauma, but that reaching out for help is that a next step to that being addressed. But that then brings into the question of how trauma manifests differently for men and women. It's not simply just the stigma around acknowledgement or around the experiences that led to that trauma, but also then how those issues manifest. Um, So can you talk a little bit about how these manifest in different behaviours and how those are shaped by gender norms in society as well? Yeah, and I think um, I touched on this a little bit uh, earlier in the discussion. Now, while there are specific symptoms associated with those suffering from trauma, as we've mentioned a number of times, depression, anxiety, somatic disorders and so on, manifestations of behaviours in response to trauma are certainly gendered. Now, there's a lot of research out there that examines how men respond to to trauma within the general population. Some of the findings show that men tend to have a more 
negative coping mechanisms, such as risk-taking, such as substance abuse, such as self-harm, or even through violent behaviours. So where men are less likely to admit difficulties, the way, instead of dealing with this, in some cases, manifests in negative behaviours that might um, include violence um, within the home. Now, we know um, from research that rates of domestic violence go up substantially as soldiers return home. So we can see that there's this link between gender-based violence and returning soldiers that also is connected somewhat to, to trauma or an association with violence during the conflict. And of course, such behaviours can have a very negative impact on family, on children and on the community. Now, of course, that's not to say that every male ex-combatant is an immediate security risk because they're suffering from trauma and they're not able to admit it. Um, and in some ways, this is going to come out in violent behaviours. That's, of course, not the case. But we do have to consider how gender norms and expectations can contribute to, to, to these types of manifestations in certain contexts. Now, for women, they may suffer, again, from depression, withdrawal from society or a lack of ability to be able to sleep, fear, anxiety as a result of trauma. But also we have to consider that sometimes, you know, women that are suffering from, from trauma after reintegration who are struggling to cope with uh, looking after children, this can also produce certain behaviours. So, for example, violence within the home or even the rejection uh, of a child. It's interesting, particularly around the figures for men. And this is why it's so important to really understand and engage with ideas and constructions of masculinity. So gender is not just focusing on women, but we also need to understand how men and boys navigate gender ideals and how that manifests for them and their individual experiences and the expectations and regulations that are set on their lives and their behaviours. I know it's not the main focus, but I really want to discuss your new book where you touch on this issue of trauma a bit. So your book is entitled Rethinking Masculinity, Ideology, Identity and Change in the People's War in Nepal and its Aftermath. Um, I highly recommend it. It's a fantastic uh, contribution to understanding masculinity in conflict settings. Um, but I really, if you could, would love if you would talk a little bit about how you touch on the issue of trauma in your book. Thank you so much, Gina, and uh, thank you for the lovely introduction to my book. Yeah, so the research for this book um, focused on masculinity and masculinity change amongst male members of the People's Liberation Army in Nepal. As I mentioned earlier, the PLA fought against the state during Nepal's People's War, which ended with the signing of a comprehensive peace agreement in 2006. Now, the research involved extensive narrative interviews with former PLA members. The majority of interviews were with men, but I also carried out some interviews with women ex-PLA members as well. And as you rightly note, the main focus was not on the issue of trauma, but instead was centred around how the ideology of the group, uh, which was more kind of gender positive than what tended to be the norm within general society, so the focus was on how the ideology of the group influenced shifts in understandings of, mascul of masculinity amongst um, uh, male combatants. But the fieldwork itself and the conversations with ex-PLA did make me reflect more on the issue of trauma and psychological stress. So in interviews with ex-combatants, the, these um, issues didn't come up directly. Symptoms associated with trauma weren't necessarily named in, in any way in interviews. 
But instead, such problems were hinted at through narratives around the way individuals reflected on the conflict. And such reflections tended to be spoken about more outside of a formal interview context, so more in a situation of casual conversation after an interview. For example, after an interview, when we'd built up some trust, some ex-combatants would reveal that they had difficulties sleeping due to the nighttime intrusions of, for example, sounds of conflict. Some individuals spoke of how they heard the sounds of bomb blasts in their head whilst they were trying to sleep. Now, I found it interesting, particularly amongst men, how during interviews they primarily like to portray a kind of image of being, you know, the best on the battlefield, how they were promoted through the ranks during the conflict due to their brilliance. Um, and in this sense, they, 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 they portrayed a kind of proudness of their participation. But it wasn't really until we were out of an interview situation that they showed more vulnerability, revealing at times psychological difficulties or disillusionment with the conflict, particularly in relation to their own socioeconomic uh, situation. And there was indications in some cases of heavy drinking in response to managing difficulties. But of course, this wasn't the case for all. In fact, some men maintained a a no alcohol policy themselves, which was consistent with the wartime ideology. But interestingly, I did come across one young man who spoke very candidly about how he dealt with traumatic memories by writing poetry. So writing poetry wasn't something really unique to this individual, as it was actually revolutionary poetry was encouraged by the Maoist leadership. Indeed, uh, there have been a number of books published by ex-PLA members on revolutionary or Maoist poetry, or poetry that reflects wartime experiences. But this young man, he focused on writing love poetry, and he explained how these writings helped him to deal with his past experiences and was his way of relaxing. So I think there's a kind of interesting contrast there between the notion that male excompetence might turn to violence or substance abuse in responding to trauma. But in this situation where this young man used writing poetry as a mechanism for dealing with his personal turmoil, really creates this, demonstrates how, how you know, responses are not straightforward. So I thought this was a, a very interesting. It really is fascinating. And thank you so much for, for sharing that. For anyone that is interested in, in more of these stories and, and your fantastic analysis of these narratives, you know, do check out Heidi's book. So finally, I, I want to move into the next chapter of your research. So you've set out this research agenda almost and looked at how it's almost been sparked by or linked by your past research in your book. And I want to ask you how you plan to further probe and engage with these issues in your research and as part of Accept. Thanks, Gina. So um, firstly, in terms of research with EXCEPT project, I'm about to embark on a piece of research which will look at trauma responses or differences in trauma responses within programmes operated by international NGOs and local NGOs. And so I'll be looking at differences in how trauma is understood by the organisation itself, within it the assumptions about trauma and who is affected by trauma. Um, And I'll also be looking generally at what programmes exist and whether there's planning for new psychosocial support programmes. 
Um, for this research, I will be focusing on except focus countries, so Syria, Iraq and South Sudan. And I'm particularly interested in this research as I'm kind of trying to probe into whether there's this dominance of Western assumptions in approaches to um, psychosocial support programmes amongst NGOs and, and where and how that might be problematic. This research doesn't specifically focus on ex-combatants, although I will be questioning whether um, NGOs that I'm interviewing work with ex-combatants and if so how. On my own uh, research um, from working with EXIT project on the development of the impact of trauma survey, I, I think this is a useful instrument in developing a more comprehensive understanding of trauma. So I plan to use an adapted version of the survey to continue my research with ex-combatants both in Nepal and in other contexts. And in this way, the hope is that by using this survey, I can examine trauma in a manner that takes account not only experiences, wartime experiences, but also takes account of childhood experiences and the process of integration. So in a way this new agenda will take my previous research and connect it um, somewhat to the focus of some of the research priorities within EXCEPT project. Thank you so much Heidi and Dr Heidi Ridley. Thank you so much Gina and it's been a pleasure to speak to you today. Likewise, thank you so much. You've been listening to the Breaking Cycles of Conflict mini-series for the War Studies podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Maddie Raven from the Accept Research Programme at King's College London. To find out more about Accept, please visit the link in the episode description. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on your preferred podcast provider. It really helps us reach more listeners. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on the War Studies podcast.